Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world or if you call Indianapolis home, I just wanna thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. All right, what's up, Traders Point family? How you doing? Good to see you. All the daylight savings people. I know you guys are wide awake. Don't you just love daylight savings? All right, we'll move on. Hey, I want to welcome all of our guests and first-time visitors across all of our campuses. My name is Aaron, and uh, I get to be one of the pastors around here. Um, so glad that you're here today. Our mission as a church is to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus. And the reason why we say it that way is because we believe that Jesus is the only one who can change anyone, and we want to get everyone to him. And once we get you to Jesus, we want to try to help facilitate and encourage and cheer you on in your spiritual growth as you grow in that relationship that's largely what Growth Track is all about, which is why we keep talking about it so much. And so I'd love for you to check out Growth Track because my ultimate desire for you is that you would begin to see church not as just something that you watch on a screen or something that you attend occasionally and just take it in, but that you would eventually see yourself as a part of this, that you're in on something much, much bigger than yourself as you seek to follow Jesus and represent him to the world. So really glad you're here. We are in week number four of a series of messages called Asking for a Friend. And we've been taking just some of the most common questions that we hear from you all on a regular basis and just addressing as many of them as we can, uh, not because we believe we have the answers, but because we believe we follow and serve one who does. And we think there's something transformational by having good conversations around really good questions. And so uh, last week, if you weren't here, uh, it was a, a challenging uh, subject to address, and yet so much good has come out of it. And I knew uh, weeks and months ago as I was just praying and planning for that particular message that uh, I wanted to have uh, my friend come and follow that message up uh, because he's got such a powerful story and just such a unique thing to say, especially as it relates uh, to issues like this. And so uh, we have uh, Caleb Kaltenbach here today. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, Caleb and I met in college. He has a powerful story. Uh, he is an author of a couple of books and one getting ready to come out, a book called Messy Grace and another one called A God of Tomorrow. Caleb is a pastor and a founder of the Messy Grace Group and uh, just a really good friend. He's one of the most authentic, real human beings that I know. I count it a real privilege to call him friend. He knows way too much about Star Wars and uh, Marvel characters than is healthy, really. But... Uh, but man, you're going to love Caleb. So I told him that this is the friendliest, warmest church on the planet, so please don't let me down, even though you've had a, a lack of sleep. Would you please put your hands together at all of our campuses and give a warm Traders Point welcome to our friend, Caleb Kaltenbach. Hey, hey, thank you so much for having me. I love this guy. You love this guy. You love Pastor Aaron. He's great. He invited me to come, and I said, I don't want to threaten you because they're not used to seeing this kind of eye candy on stage. Are you going to be okay with that? And he said, I'll make it somehow. But I love this guy. I, I've known him for 23 years. We went to college together. He was on the first floor. I was on the third floor. Um, I've got stories about him that I will not share because he's got worse stories about me, and he will share. 
and he's preaching next weekend, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but I just want to let you know that uh, obviously if you have come here for any amount of time, you know that he's a good leader, you know that he is a good communicator, but in a day and age when character and integrity are, so- are sorely needed, I want to let you know that you have a pastor that has the utmost character and integrity. He is the same person on stage as he is off stage. And so I just want you to know that he's someone that you can trust in. So if you're visiting today and you've never been here before, I'm glad you're here and know that, that he is a great communicator and I hope you come back next week and hear him again. Um, and, and if I lived in this area, I would be attending Trader's Point because God is doing some incredible things here. So I hope that you keep on coming here and uh, checking it out. And if you do attend here, I hope that you'll invite your friends and that you'll say, hey, this is a place where it's okay not to be okay, but we all journey through life together. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about me. Um, My wife, Amy, is a uh, marriage family therapist. She's a Christian counselor. We live in the Los Angeles area, a suburb of Los Angeles called Simi Valley. I have a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter, Joel and Rachel. I love them both, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth. He was the firstborn. When my wife and I first got married, we couldn't wait to have kids because obviously we were insane. We were excited to have kids. We want to have kids quickly. And I knew what to expect once we got to the hospital, right? Because I had seen the movies. You know, I knew that when the baby came out, he would come out pristine clean and there'd be a light from heaven and underscoring epic John Williams Star Wars music, as if that's a bad thing, Aaron. And then (laughs) I knew that he would come out and, and be happy and make cute cooing baby noises, grab my finger, and in that moment, with perfect pronunciation, he would say the word, Father But that is not what happened. Everything was going great until we got to the hospital. And then the pain hit my wife, and she became somebody that I had not exchanged vows with at that point. (laughs) I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her, and she looked at me, and she said, don't touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is, we need an old priest and a young priest in here. But the doctor came in and gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And then the doctor and the nurses come in in what looks like a hazmat get-up and and a welding mask, and I'm thinking, is something going to explode because I'm the only one that's not covered? (laughs) And when my son came into the world, uh, my expression went from this to, oh, (laughs) as I put him back, he needs to cook some more. Um, He was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. He had gunk on him I had never seen. He didn't make cute baby noises. He sounded like a gremlin when he came out. And his head, did you know that the human head can be circular, triangulish, and square all at the same time? And if you get to know me, you'll find out I don't always have much of a filter. And they wrapped him up in a blanket and gave him to me. And they said, what do you think? And my first words about my son were, he looks like a turtle. And, and my daughter looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, and some of you have uh, been there in your own circumstances, I mean, you, you know that it is messy. But something happened in that moment where I don't know where it came from, but I loved my son. And I loved my daughter when she was born. And I knew that there is nothing that they could ever do, no matter how messy they are, to get me to love them less. And trust me, my children have. They've gotten me sick. They have taken money away from me already. Um, I used to look like Zac Efron, and then I had children. (laughs) Like, I could have been a greatest showman. But, I mean, I'm convinced I'm going to die five years earlier because I have children. But at the same time, it's worth it because 
I love my kids, and it doesn't matter what they do, I will never stop loving them. I want to let you know something. That's how God feels about you, and that's how God feels about everybody else you see, okay? Here's what we do to each other. We end up labeling each other by our messiness, giving each other uh, false definitions that lie, and we define other people by their mess, and we categorize, marginalize people, push them to the fray. But when you decide to follow Jesus and come into a relationship with the Father through Jesus, here's what happens, okay? God rips off the labels, looks past the false definitions. He takes us out of the categories and the margins, puts us in his family, and he says, that's my child. You are my child, and there is nothing that will ever change that, even your own messiness. Now, I love that, right? I love that God loves messy people like me. I just don't understand how God can love people that are messy in ways that I'm not, right? You ever notice that, that sometimes you feel like God votes just like you, and when you have a problem with someone, God obviously has a problem with them too? Here's something that's kind of a sobering thought, and some of you already know this, but maybe you don't believe it in your heart, but you know it logically, okay? God loves the people that you don't like, and God loves the people who don't like you. I know that's pushing it, but it's true, right? God loves the people that voted for the other candidate. God loves people that are in different relationships than you would ever be. God loves people that have different theological convictions. I mean, even last week, I thought Pastor Aaron preached a phenomenal message last week. And, and if you missed it, you need to listen to it or watch it on the website. Or you could download it, uh, the podcast episode. But I, I'm telling you, you have got to see it because... Here's the deal. No matter where we are on the spectrum, and I'm, I just want to acknowledge with the number of people that are watching and listening right now, there are some of you, you're on this side of the conversation when it comes to LGBTQ. Others of you are on this other, other polar opposite side. Some of you are in the middle. Some of you are just confused. We all have different opinions on it. We may not agree with each other's opinions, but here's the question that I really wanted us to tackle today. It's a question that we ask all the time. Maybe not in the exact way I'm going to put it, but we think it, maybe we talk to other people about it. Here's the question. How do we love people well with whom we disagree? The people that we disagree with on matters of politics, on matters of of relationships, uh, matters of theology, Matters of world religion, people that have a different moral compass or operate from a different system of ethics, people that have hurt us or people that we don't like. How do we love people that are difficult, that are messy? They're just messy in different ways. How do we love them? Because God loves messy people like us and messy people who are not like us, both. And if we're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to follow Jesus, this might be a good reason for you not to follow Jesus because. We have got to learn how to love people well, no matter what. So how do we do that? Well, what we're going to do today, we're going to turn to the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to join Jesus at a a, a very pivotal circumstance that he's experiencing in the middle of his ministry. You're going to find it in in this fourth book of the New Testament called John. Now, John was a disciple or a student of Jesus. He, He followed Jesus around for three years and he saw all the things that Jesus did, and he heard all the things that Jesus said. And so near the end of his life, when he was in his 90s, near the end of the first century, John ended up writing this account of Jesus' life with the things that he's heard Jesus say and the things he saw Jesus do, so that we would have a firsthand account, an eyewitness testimony 
to what Jesus was up to. And, and here's the deal. As we look at this passage, this story, this narrative, we're going to find hidden within the words of this passage, we're going to find a principle that's going to help us to love other people who are messy in different ways than we are, who have different theological convictions, who vote differently, who have the jobs that we would never want to have, or we don't understand why they would work for that company. We're going to learn how to love people well with whom we disagree. And so if you have your Bibles or mobile devices, you can turn to John chapter 8. If not, we're going to have the words on the screen uh, behind me in just a moment, and I'm going to read them to you. But in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2, here's what it says. But early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? We're going to stop right here in the beginning of verse 6, but I want to read it because it kind of drives you nuts, okay? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, let me just set the scene for you. Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, which is kind of like a church lobby, and he has his students with him, and then he has the ordinary people surrounding him, like you and me, who are listening to him, and then we're introduced to the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. These are like the celebrity pastors of the day. They have the entire Old Testament memorized word for word, and there were some 6,000 Pharisees and teachers of religious law. Most of them, not all, but most of them did not like Jesus. Because Jesus came full of compassion and conviction. They controlled people through legalism and fear. And their following was decreasing, and Jesus' following, it was increasing. And so they find this woman, don't, don't miss this, they find this woman caught in the act, in the act of adultery. And it's like, how they find her? It's like, no, they're creepers, right? And they take her. And they drag her through town. They put her in front of Jesus, and they say, hey, in Deuteronomy 22, Moses says, and God's speaking through him, that we can stone this woman. What do you say? And they're trying to trap him, just like the beginning of verse 6 says. And by the way, Deuteronomy does say that. It's, it's under the Old Testament law. We're not under the Old Testament law anymore. It's for a different season when Israel is leaving Egypt. It's a different time, different context. And they're right. God does say if you find a man and a woman in an affair, you can take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man and a woman. I'm like, where's the dude? Yeah, he's still not there. I guess what really makes me mad is that they don't care about her healing. They don't care about her redemption. They don't care about helping her. They don't care about what she's been through. They don't care about restoring her. They're using her as much as a man who's having an affair with her was using her in that moment. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of spirituality, but no matter what, you got to admit, that is messed up. Okay, I don't know what you would do, but Jesus does something awkward. And some of you are like, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does awkward. I didn't say it was creepy, bad, strange. I'm just saying, I bet you've never done it. Okay? Look at the end of verse 6. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. That's awkward. And some of you aren't laughing because you've read this story for a long time. Like, you've read it a lot because you've been a Christian since God was a boy. That's how long you've been a Christian. You're used to it. When's the last time you had an argument with someone and you said, hold on? Yeah? Probably never, right? 
And so Jesus always had intentionality with whatever he did. So people like, what was he writing, you know, in, in, the, in the dust? What was he writing in the ground? Some people think maybe it was verses of Scripture or the sins of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law. But I found this really interesting verse all the way back in the Old Testament. This uh, Old Testament prophet or a preacher named Jeremiah said something. God was speaking through him. And I think that it could maybe clue us in on what Jesus was saying. See if you can make the connection. In verse 13, it says, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth. And literally, in the original language, that's better read, they will be written in the dust. They'll be written in the ground, in the dirt, in the mud, in the sand. Why? For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. And if I was a betting person, I bet that Jesus was writing down the names of the people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, in the dirt. I think he was making a statement because they thought that this woman was too far away from God to receive God's love because of her affair. And yet Jesus is saying, no, you are further away than she is. You've abandoned God because even though you have the Old Testament memorized word for word, you don't love people. You have no compassion. Hear me out on this. God doesn't care how much you know if you have no compassion to show. Okay, God, God could give a rip how much of this book you have memorized. You might as well be memorizing Shakespeare or John Grisham that, or, or a Nickelback song. It, it doesn't matter to God. God's like, no, that's annoying. Because if you don't have love to back up what you believe in here, you don't believe anything. It's worthless. But they don't get it. And you can kind of tell that they don't get it because going back to uh, John chapter 8, verse 7, it says that they kept on demanding an answer. So Jesus stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then Jesus stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now, this is brilliant because Jesus knows they're not going to throw a stone. They believed back then, just like I believe and Pastor Aaron believes and the leadership of this church believes, that God is the only sinless being in existence. That every other being has sin. So if they picked up a rock and threw it claiming to be sinless and they knew they had sin, they'd be lying. Everybody else would know they're lying. And out of the 613 commands in the Old Testament, God thought lying was a big enough deal to put that one in the top ten, right? That's like big time. But Jesus also knew that if they picked up a rock and if they threw it claiming to be sinless, that's tantamount to claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. If God's the only sinless being and you're saying, I'm sinless too, you're claiming to be God. And the very rock that you threw would be used to throw right back at you because blasphemy, you got the death penalty immediately. Checkmate. I tell people all the time, listen, you may not believe in Jesus yet. You got to admit he's got mad skills. You do not want to get into an argument with Jesus. And you can see the result of this. This is like my favorite part of the whole passage. This is great. Look at verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. I love that. Slipped away. Like, okay, they'd silently walk away. Beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And the last part of verse 11, this is the whole reason why we went through this passage. This is the principle of how we can love people who are messy in different ways than we are, people who are in relationships that we just would never be in or don't understand, people that disagree with us on issues that are important. 
What Jesus says here is going to help us. It's one long sentence in the original language, and here's what he says in the end of verse 11. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus says, neither do I. Grace, go and sin no more. Truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. As a matter of fact, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 17 say that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth. Now, you might think, okay, that, that's easy for him because he's God, right? I mean, he's got a corner marker of the deal. Yeah, but Jesus is 100% God and 100% human at the same time. And so it's not e- any easier for him than it was for us. And I'm willing to bet that you and everybody else you know and everybody else you see, and just all of us, we could all be divided into two groups. There are some of us, we are more on the grace side. Some of us are more on the truth side. Okay, some of us are more about the compassion. Others of us were more about the conviction. Some of us, our version of God is a cross between Olaf and Buddy the Elf. Okay, that's our, our, our view of God. And then others of us, our view of God is that strict principle from elementary school that we're just like shivering if we went into that principal's office. Or maybe think about it like this. Some of you are like my kids. You pull out Monopoly and you don't care about the rules. Rules are merely suggestions. You just want to have fun and play the game. Or you're like my wife. And my wife says, no, 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 no. We've got to follow the rules. Okay? Rules control the fun. Rules make fun more fun. And I'm like, like this conversation we're having right now. That, it's fun. Can we please talk more about the rules? I love conversations about the rules. And I want to make this statement here, and I want to use an an illustration and a visible prop that you all can see. And it's something that if you've been attending here for a while, you've seen Pastor Aaron do. Here's the statement, and and I'm dead serious on this. If you take sides between grace and truth, you're saved, you're going to heaven. See you there. (laughs) Do the rest of us a favor. Don't ever call yourself a mature Christian because you're not. You're weak. You're saved. You're weak, though. Because mature Christians don't take sides. If Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth, what gives you the right to be all about the grace or all about the truth? You don't get that right. Okay? If you do take sides, it's like holding a rubber band by one end. Weak and flimsy, and there's no power there. This is what it's like if you say, I'm all about the grace but no truth. And it's what it's like when you say, I'm all about the truth but no grace. It doesn't matter how much you know. You're weak and you're flimsy. You have no power. So where's the power lie? Well, look at this. If I stand for both grace and truth, where's the power lie? The power lies in the tension of the two. And it's this tension that gives us the power, and we run away from it because it's tension and it's uncomfortable. And it takes absolutely no effort on our part to be all about the grace or all about the truth if that's just what it is, if that's just who we are. It's spiritual laziness, and we feel this tension. We run away from it when we're like, okay, Jesus says this, but my friend is doing this, and the Bible says this, but I'm struggling over here, and Paul says this, my family member's doing this, and we feel this tension, and we run, and we're lazy, okay? Now, here's the deal. When you run, You're running away from love because there's a name for this tension. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension of grace and truth. 
this uncomfortable tension that you feel between grace and truth when you're like, I love God, but I love this person, and I don't know, I don't know what they think, and this person rejected me and just everything, and I don't want to stop loving them. You don't have to. Okay, listen, it takes all the effort in the world, if you're on the grace side, to depend on God and to stretch over the truth. Or if you're on the truth side, to, dep- to depend on God and strengthen your faith in him and to stretch over to the grace side so that you can love people and you do it by loving God well, no matter where you are. Love is the tension that you feel between grace and truth. And when you take sides, you're compromising your greatest power because God is found in the uncomfortable. He's not found in your comfort. And by the way, if you don't like what I'm saying, just a little footnote, you might want to rethink being a Christian. Seriously. Because you've got tension, if you're a Christian, you've got tension all over your theology, you just may not know it. And some of you are like, no way, Caleb. Okay, let's do Caleb's rubber band test. How about that? Ready? Here we go. You believe in one God, but the Trinity. Hello? Do you ever try to explain the Trinity to someone that doesn't understand it? That's fun. Right? You believe that we should love God and love people? You believe that God inspired the Bible but used people to write it? You believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human? You believe that God is in control but he allows us to make our own decisions and holds us accountable? You believe that death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection? It sure doesn't look like they're destroyed yet. You believe that you can be a good preacher and have hair? Come on. (laughs) Right? So why do we run away from... The tension of grace and truth and not the tension on the concept of the Trinity or what we think about Scripture. I think it's because grace and truth always have to do with our relationships. And any relationship you're in, even the negative ones, even with the people in your neighborhood, even the people that you work with, there's emotional attachment. And when an emotional attachment gets hard, we don't handle it well. And a lot of us run or we avoid or we overreact and we go to one side or the other, and we end up not being loving. So, who's the person you need to live with in grace and truth in your life? Let me tell you about the messy people in my life who are messy in different ways than I am. It's my mom and my dad. When I was two, they were both professors at the University of Missouri-Columbia and some other colleges, and they got a divorce, and my parents both went into same-sex relationships. My dad was in several different relationships, and my mom went into a 22 um, year monogamous same-sex relationship with a woman named Vera. They moved to Kansas City. They joined the local board of directors for GLAD. I was raised my whole childhood in the LGBTQ community. That's what I grew up in. That was my reality. I was like, doesn't everybody have three gay parents? <laughs> my parents took me with them to clubs and bars when I was young and to campouts and house parties and to pride parades. And I, I remember this one pride parade I was marching in. At the end of it, there were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, turn or burn. And if that wasn't offensive enough, when people from my mom's parade would try to talk to them, they would get doused with water and urine, saying, this is what Jesus thinks of you. And I was just like, that that, that can't be right. And even as a kid, I looked at my mom, and I said, Mom, why are they doing that? And I'll never forget what my mom said. My mom looked right at me, and she said, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate God gay people. If you are not like them, they will not like you. And I, I, I 
first I didn't believe it, but then after a while I did because I saw this happen again and again. I saw people making fun of my mom and her friends. I saw you know, some of my mom's friends being bashed and beaten up for their relationships. I saw young men in my mom's community, their Christian families wouldn't even come see them when they were dying of AIDS. Their Christian families like, would be there but wouldn't talk to them, and they're taking a stand for God. No, you're being a moron. And you're pushing people away from God. That's what you're doing. And one day you'll answer for that, by the way. And so by the time I got to be 16 years old, when I was a sophomore in high school, like I, I, I couldn't stand Christians. I was sneaking out at night, getting drunk, living it up. And I got invited by a high school friend to go to a high school Bible study he led for high schoolers and study the Bible. And I was like, man, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to go and be a ninja Christian. I'm going to be a pretend Christian and learn about their faith and dismantle it. And obviously that worked out real well, right? <laughs> and the reason why it didn't work out is because Jesus did not align with the actions and the words of his followers on the street corners, or dare I say today on social media. He was not like them. Thankfully, Jesus had very deep biblical beliefs, and he had very real expectations of how people who follow him should treat others and live their lives, or what we would call the pursuit of holiness, but he also had very personal and authentic relationships with people that were marginalized, and and people that the pastors of his day would want nothing to do with. I love how uh, Pastor Andy Stanley puts it. He says that people who are nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, he liked them back, they liked him even more. It was like, I can get on board with him. And then I was like, I I know I'm going to have to study what the Bible has to say about intimacy and, and sex and marriage and relationships. And I came to two conclusions that I still hold today. First one is this. I believe that God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed in marriage between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that is not his intended purpose For sexual intimacy, it's what we would call sin or falling short. But I also believe this, that a theological conviction is never catalyst to treat someone less, okay? That you can have correct theology but be an absolute heretic in the way that you treat people. That, that, listen, your differences with people should drive you to them, not from them. You and I need to be very committed to God's word. We need to trust God's words instead of society's latest trends, but at the same time, we need to be people who say, our theology, it drives me to love you more because you are someone that Jesus died for and God created. A person's value is not wrapped up in their theology. It's not wrapped up in their opinions. It's not wrapped up in relationships or politics or their sports team. It's not even wrapped up in your family. You have intrinsic value and so does everybody else because everyone you see is someone God created and Jesus died for. So when we mistreat people, we are spitting on the image of God and misappropriating the blood of Jesus. And I was nervous to tell my parents I was a Christian who wanted to be a pastor who changed his view on, you know, what I thought about sexual intimacy. Um, I I had to come out to my three LGBTQ activist parents as a Christian, and they kicked me out of the house. And so when I speak at student conferences, I'll have LGBTQ students come up and say, you have no idea. My parents rejected me. And I'm like, actually, I know exactly how that feels. And yet, the pain and oppression you feel from other people never gives you 
permission to mistreat other people because when you do the same to them, you are just like them and you are adding pain into their lives and they already have pain that's driving them to act like that. And then, like, when I graduated from high school, they let me back in eventually, but I, I went down uh, to Bible College in Southern Missouri. It's where I met Aaron um, and started preaching at churches. And I remember this one church while I was in college I preached at for, like, 18 months. It was in a town of 50 people. There were 25 of those people in our church. Um, we had half our town one for Christ. We were the largest church per capita at the time, <laughs> I think. And so, you know, after 18 months, I was able to get my mom to come to church with me. She'd never heard me preach. I was like, you know, come hear me preach. And so she came, and I was so excited. And people kind of were standoffish a little bit. But the next Sunday I showed up, my mom wasn't with me, but two elders were waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, Caleb, we'd like to talk to you. If you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, well, I, I don't like you, so I quit, like, now. I quit now. They're like, no, we need you to preach. I said, oh, you don't want that. Not after this conversation. So I'm thinking in my head, if I'm preaching, I'm going out in a blaze of glory, and I'm taking everybody down with me, man. You know, I'm like, trust me, you do not want Caleb to preach right now. They said, no, we need a sermon. I said, oh, you're going to get one. And so I took my sermon I had written. It was on fasting, ripped it up. Who cares about that, right? And I got up there. And I'm preaching this sermon on grace and truth and love and mercy and compassion and conviction. And I walk out and I'm like, God, if you give me the chance to be a part of a church, I want to be in a church that is filled with messy, broken people who are questioning their sexuality, who think they have everything together, who have been in five different marriages, who are depressed, people who are in gangs and homeless and addicts and alcoholics, people who have been Christians since God was a boy, because that is what the church is, people. The church is a beautiful mosaic of messy, broken lives that God unites together to glorify himself. That's what the church is. God is the most glorified when we are broken and realize the need for daily dependence on him no matter what. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross for a place masquerading as a church, but it's really a member-only country club where you have to agree with us to be with us. That's not biblical. Go read 1 Corinthians 14. We'll talk later. And so eventually I, I ended up graduating, went out to Los Angeles, um, worked at a sister church out there for 11 years, uh, got married to my wife, Amy. Like, I told you about her, but what I didn't tell you about her is, like, she's beautiful. Like, she's gorgeous. Like, she's tall. She's tan. She's toned. She's got six-pack. She goes to the, you know, the gym every day. She's a kinesiology major. She's a muy caliente Latina. <laughs> and in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Fester Grew and Dr. Evil. She just had... <laughs> Laugh all you want. This is her eye candy. It's what she wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky lady. <laughs> but after being on staff at this church for 11 years, I moved to Dallas, Texas to be a senior pastor. And um, my, my family obviously came with me. But then my, my mom's partner, Vera, she had died of cancer. And unless... You know, it was a miracle she died without Christ. And it, it was devastating to my mom that she died. They were together 22 years. Was, we had a hard relationship. It was devastating for me. 
And so I, I ended up, you know, saying, okay, let's, you know, let's go down there and let's preach. And then my parents moved down there to Dallas to be close to our family. Then they started attending my church, even though they knew what I believed. And like two or three weeks in the summer of 2013, before, like, we moved back to Southern California, my mom and dad, at the ages of 69 and 70, gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Both of them. And I'm thinking, how's that go together? I asked, you know, my mom and dad, and they said, Caleb, people treated us like people, not like projects. People didn't agree with what we believed about this, but they treated us well anyway. They treated us like normal human beings. And so how do we live in this tension? How do we live in the tension of, of, of grace and truth, messy grace? I mean, God's grace is perfect. When it hits our messy lives, it looks like messy grace, and it feels like messy grace. That's what this tension is. So how do we live in it? i got to go real quick here because I'm like over, okay? But real quick. Number one is this. Change your posture. Be known for what you're for, not against. Hear me out on this. I want you to trust God's words more than society's latest trends, but at the same time, you can do that while being known for what you're for, not against. When Jesus was in contact with society and unbelievers, he was always known for what he was for. He got mad at the religious leaders, a.k.a. people like you and me. He didn't get mad at, at society. This woman caught in the affair. I mean, were the Pharisees right? Did she sin? Yes. But Jesus was for her redemption, for her reconciliation, for giving her more chances. He was not against her. Okay, hear me out. You can have correct doctrine, but be an absolute heretic by how you treat someone. So how do you stop that? Second thing you do is this. Don't allow the fear of some to determine the value of many. Don't allow the fear of some to determine the value of many. You see, what the tension does of grace and truth, it creates a bridge. Without it, you have a false dichotomy, which is ruling our society. But with the tension, you have a bridge. And fear keeps us from loving people well. Fear makes us crazy when it leads us. You see, fear is a constant companion in life. It's not bad. It's a good thing. If you see a rattlesnake, you should be afraid. But here's the deal. If you let fear lead you, you're going you're gonna to hurt people. We naturally fear what we don't understand or whatever makes us feel out of control, whether it's a person, a people group, a circumstance, an idea, an opinion. When we feel out of control and we don't understand, we become afraid. We start to control things. We start to try to maneuver things, or maybe we just back away. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Agatha Christie, said, fear is incomplete knowledge. I, I love my favorite theologian. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Yoda. He says that fear is a path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Fear will unintentionally give you permission to do horrible things to people, and you will justify it, thinking that God is okay with it. And we've got to be careful how we deal with this, because more than anything, Every single thing that you and I deal with in our life, it's an identity issue. We all have identity issues. We are all defined by something else. And identity issues require us to think deeper about the person, not differently about theology. I'm not asking you to change your theology. I'm asking you 
to hold strong to what you believe over here and to love people no matter what. Okay, because nobody is shallow. Everybody you see is a conglomeration of their hopes and their dreams and their achievements and their failures and their experiences and their upbringing. Nobody's shallow. You need to think, learn to think deeper about people, not differently about theology. You need to learn to sit down and to listen to people, to learn how to ask good questions of people, find out more about their life, explore who they are. When you're with them, turn off your phone, be fully present. Because, think about it, when you're fully present with someone, you make them feel like they are worth being with. Here's the last thing i got to say, and i got to go real quick about this. Okay? Embrace the difference between acceptance and agreement. Pastor Aaron already kind of said this. I want to kind of reiterate it. Acceptance is commanded. Agreement is not. Approval is not. Affirmation is not. Acceptance is loving someone for who they are, where they are, no matter what. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. When he's like, hey, somebody strikes you on one side of the cheek, turn to them the other one also. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. You're no different. Paul says the same in Matthew 12, 9 through 18, especially verse 18. When Paul says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. In the next chapter, Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul continues that thought. And he says, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. We're talking about empathy Brene Brown says empathy is to feel with another person. Reggie Joyner, the director of Orange, says that empathy is the ability to put your own thoughts and feelings on pause long enough to think and feel with another person. Empathy is not the surrender of your beliefs. It's not the rejection of a person. It is the acknowledgement of their reality. That's what empathy is. It is feeling with someone, just like God did, left heaven to come down here and have a human experience to die for us, rise for us, leave the Holy Spirit with us, and come back one day for us. Love is the tension of grace and truth. And when you do these things, you will, when you make these investments in people's lives, you will earn influence. And influence gives your words weight. And you will really be able to make the life difference for someone. Someone who's messy, just messy in different ways than you because God loves messy people. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for this church so we can have these conversations. And I pray if we've been hurt by the church at all, I pray that we would realize that even though Christians hurt us, you use Christians to help heal us. I pray that you would help us ask more questions about who your son is, Jesus. I pray for those of us who are following you that we would look at our own lives. Who are we rejected? Who are we pushing to the side? Who are we not engaging? May we love people in the tension of grace and truth. May we have messy grace for messy people like us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Love you guys.